I don't know how many of you were here last week or how many of you did download the message from last week to hear what has been happening at Ellerslie. It's sort of hard to describe uh, in just some normal terminology what we've experienced here, but it has been a definite uh, demonstration of the life of God in our midst. A lot of us have grown up around Christianity or been around Christianity in different ways, and to be honest, there's been a massive turnoff uh, from Christianity in the entire generation, most of you that are in it, the younger generation. Uh, and and I, I, I hesitate to say it this way, but I could say rightfully so. When you see something that so contradicts the revealed word of God, and then it's called and classified as normal Christianity, it is no wonder that a generation is struggling to, to look back at it and say, you know what? That makes total sense. God comes down and he says, this is what it's supposed to work like. This is how it's supposed to function. This is what it's supposed to do with with itself. It's supposed to showcase love. It's supposed to demonstrate the nature of God. It's supposed to showcase his kingdom. It's supposed to have power and authority on earth. And then you look at what we have in Christianity and you measure it against itself and something is lacking. The problem is we don't know what to do with it as the church because there's a lot of us in here that still love Jesus But we're having a difficult time knowing what to do with the church of Jesus Christ today. And where it starts is with us as individuals. Let's not be part of the problem. Let's be part of the solution. In other words, Jesus, I think I've I've been shortchanged here somewhat. There's something more that you intend to do in the human life. And I, for one, am willing to come before you and say, do it in me. That's what a whole bunch of students have gotten together in the past few weeks and done. Basically, like, God, we're not going to be part of the problem any longer. We want to be part of the solution. And they've laid their lives down before the living God and said, God, you do whatever you deem fit. Whatever you say in your word is what we want here in our life. This church and this ministry is defined by some very, very basic things. And I think they're a rallying point for many in our generation. And that is that the word of God must once again gain its centrality in the Christian existence. This isn't just about our feelings about God. This isn't about the way we want God to be. This is the way that God has revealed himself. This is, our expectations are not based around someone else's opinion about what human life should be. It's on what God created human life to be. We go to the word of God and we say, we trust it. We trust it implicitly. And whatever it says goes. And we submit to it. And where we contradict it, who's wrong? We are. We submit to it and we say, we're wrong, you're right, God. It's one of the things we stand for here. Second thing is the preeminence of Jesus Christ in all matters. There isn't any exception to that. I don't care what the issue is in our life. Jesus Christ is the solution. And that might sound like an oversimplification to life. To say, well, what about my special circumstance over here? There is no special circumstance in all the world. Everything is dealt with in the word of God and by Jesus Christ. He is the answer to any and all situations, and he is the one that must be central in our life. In every moment of our life, he wants us to build our existence around him. And then we believe that the calling of Jesus Christ is outlined in the word of God, which then makes Jesus Christ preeminent in all matters, and then commissions us to follow and to live this life which, by the way, I'm going to hallmark as impossible, what he actually commissions us to do is absolutely, utterly ridiculous from a human vantage point. It's impossible. And so that's why we've seen so many people trying to drum up the energy and the wit and the wisdom to be able to live this impossible life. So one of the other principal points of what we're doing here 
is we say, yes, it is impossible. It is impossible for man, but it is not impossible for God. Our job is to simply come before our God and give him our lives. That's our job. We let go. We let go of our existence and we let God have his rightful place. And he is able, in and through the yielded life of a believer, to showcase heaven on earth. To showcase love the way love is supposed to be. Yes, we do get in the way and we trip up the glory of God. But when a human life is yielded in the way that God designed it to, we become a channel, a flow through, for the living God to once again show himself on planet earth. And then we all gather together, and this should be a picture of something marvelous and something beautiful. This message, the Almighty Defense, flows out of two weeks ago. I gave a message called His Beautiful Feet. And I was talking about the importance of the feet of Jesus Christ, the importance of the feet of a believer, which is symbolic in the Hebrew culture. Okay? Feet is not something that in our typical understanding, is our, I would say our pedestrian understanding of things, is a very interesting thing to talk about. Now, we did make one exception. Mike Hahn's feet are very interesting to talk about, but very few other feet are that interesting to talk about. And the reason is, is he has this one toe that's like a claw, and my kids love to like do stuff with it and play with it. So, but then there's the rare exception to the rule that feet are very interesting for any of us. In fact, we'd rather just cover them up and hide them and act like we don't have them, okay? We'd rather say we have shoes, not feet. And yet the Bible actually says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. What a strange statement. And that is because what it is talking about in the Hebrew culture is feet are a symbol of authority and dominance. And what Jesus Christ has come and accomplished on earth is he has put all things under his feet. Very few of us understand what peace truly is. And Jesus is the prince of it. He's the prince of peace, which doesn't impress us that much, to be honest. It's like, well, peace, and we look at it as just sort of an emotion or a feeling that we have. And it's like, if all things are going right in our life, then we have peace. And then it's gone in the next minute. But we had peace for one minute, yet the peace that it seems to describe in Scripture is something very different than that. It is a peace that passes all understanding. That's actually the description of it. This is supposed to be a hallmark of the basic Christian life. What it means is that there is no more enemy faction within your inner life. There is no more of that enemy turmoil, that darkness within your soul that has constantly held you down, whether it's fear, whether it's anxiety, whether it's pride, whether it's lust, whatever it is, it's been dealt with. And it's under the feet of Jesus. That's the gospel of peace. Peace means the removal of all enemy faction. So the gospel of peace, the power of God into salvation, where he comes into the inner man and literally stakes his claim and says, this is my territory now. Out. All that is dark. All that is formidable to my name. Out. It says the weapons of our warfare are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Anything that would exalt itself above Jesus Christ in our life, we have the weaponry to stand up and to fight against it and to see it brought low. Boy. That's good news. And how few Christians know it. And I can't tell you, if we were to just gather just a whole pile of Christians into one room and say, how many of you understand that? How many of you even believe it's true? The word of God reveals it as such. 
He says, this is basic stuff. This isn't some bonus version for this one Christian that somehow in his 81st year of Christianity is able to finally break through and find that, oh, I no longer have to deal with that anymore. This is something that when we come into the kingdom of heaven, we are supposed to grab a hold of and bring into our inner life via faith. Jesus Christ died, and when he died, he shed blood and his body was broken. Very important thing that took place. But Jesus Christ made a way, and that is a way into him so that he could clothe us in himself because we have no access point into the throne room of grace. We can't go in there. The very holy, almighty presence of Jehovah God, he's perfect in every way, and we are marked by sin and defeat. We're feeble wretches. We, we, we We can't go into his presence. So what did Jesus do? He came into our presence, made a way for us, and then wrapped us in it. All we must do is come to Jesus Christ. He wraps us in himself, his blood, his righteousness. And now, if we are clothed in him, we are able to enter into the throne room of grace. You know that that's good news in and of itself? But there's a reason why he wants us in that throne room. It's not just so that we can stand there clothed in Jesus Christ. It's that there's a treasure chest of grace there. There is a treasure chest of all that God has purchased, everything that is needed for life and godliness, everything that's needed for real life on planet earth is in that throne room. It's known as the person of Jesus Christ. We come into Jesus Christ by believing, by coming to him and saying, please, what you did, I need. I need, I need to be cleansed from my sin. I need to be washed clean. I'm filthy. He wraps us in himself. He deals with our sin. He cleanses, he purges our conscience, which is constantly berating us and accusing us. He deals with it. And he enables us to come into his very presence in order that he might come into us. And he might invade the existence of a man and a woman of God. And he would take over and lay claim and set the soles of his feet upon our own soul. And that he would rule and he would reign in our inner life. And this life is no longer about us. It's no longer about what we want to do, what we want to achieve, how much we want to gain, how popular we are. It's now suddenly about him. And you know how freeing that is? I know that sounds like death, and it is. It's death to give up life to ourselves. We like it to be about us. It feels good when people look to us and they applaud us. But I tell you what, there is no greater freedom and no greater peace when you finally get out of the way and let it be about Jesus Christ. It's about him. They can mock you. They can laugh at you, and it doesn't affect you. They can praise you. They can uh, applaud you. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't go straight to the head and cause you to get a little swagger. It goes straight to Jesus Christ. He deserves all the glory and all the praise, all the adoration. He's the one that put it all under his feet. But what Jesus Christ did on that cross was he made a way for us to have the feet of God. This is one of the most profound things. This is why we talked about it two weeks ago. How beautiful are the feet, first of all, of Jesus, the one who brings good news to us. But then how beautiful are the feet of those who bring that good news to this world. And he clothes us. He shods our feet. He places shoes of iron and brass upon our feet. That means everything of enemy darkness, everything that has come against us all those years throughout our existence is now hook underneath our feet not because they're our feet they're his feet you ever heard that statement we are the body of christ 
little strange. How do we become the body of someone else? We enter into Jesus, and suddenly this hand is no longer my own. This hand belongs to Jesus. This becomes his hand. This becomes his, his leg and his foot. And so suddenly, I become the dwelling place of the very spirit of Almighty God. And he says, yeah, this is now my body. And I can do with it what I need to do on planet Earth. And then we all gather together as Christians, and we are known as the body of Christ. God lives in our midst, and he takes these hands, these eyes, these ears, these mouths, and he uses them on planet Earth to demonstrate his glory, to show forth his love, his mercies, his kindnesses, his tender-hearted love. This is the manner, this is the way of our king. It's an incredible reality. I want to walk through how this, how this works, and I want you to realize that the reason he makes us his body isn't just for some answer to a trivia question. It's like, so who became the body of Christ? Uh, those that believe? And we're like, eh, you know, that's great, excellent, that's two points for you. It doesn't do us any good to just call ourselves the body if we don't understand functionally why we are the body and what we are to be doing on planet Earth with it. I'm going to go through a few scriptures and lay the foundation. For some reason, this isn't working, but uh, you guys can progress it in the back uh, if you need to. Okay. Uh, now, these are very specific scriptures that I'm using to demonstrate a truth. Himself, speaking of Jesus, took our infirmities, our weaknesses, our frailties, and bare our sicknesses. Okay? So he took our infirmities, and he bore our sicknesses. Okay, let's go to the next one. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So one thing you're noticing about this Jesus here, because this is a scripture in Isaiah 53 before Jesus even came, which is a direct prophecy about a coming Messiah. Read Isaiah 53, you'll see Jesus all over. This is talking about Jesus. And this one who is to come has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Okay, now, griefs, sorrows, infirmities, sicknesses, not very fun things to lug around. Jesus carries them. Okay, let's go to the next one. Who his own, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. Okay, so go back. Uh, so we're talking about the fact that God, in his own body, bore our sins. Okay, he didn't, the, he didn't just command them to go. He bore them. Where? In his body. Okay, this is just, I'm building a case here. I know there's some of you are like, obviously, where else would he have borne them? I'm just saying, Scripture makes it very clear that Jesus bore this in his body. So when we're seeing that he's carrying our sorrows, he's carrying our sicknesses, he's carrying our griefs, where is he carrying them? In his body. His body is lugging this stuff around. Let's go to the next one. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So he is suffering. He is carrying griefs and sorrows, sicknesses and infirmities so that we could live unto righteousness and so that he is able to aid those who are tempted. He is doing this for a purpose. He is, he is standing in a position for us because we are feeble and we are weak and we are unable to carry these things. We carry these things and what do they do to us? They drive us right into the ground. They destroy our life. We end up in insane asylums. We end up in hospital wards. 
We end up sick and diseased and feeble and shaking. And are we able to turn outward and give anything to this earth? No, because we are so focused on our own issues. Welcome to Christianity. Here we have the very God of the universe. We're supposedly the ones that believe it. We're the ones that believe that God carried all this stuff. Why? So that we would be able, so that we could live unto righteousness. The reason he carried these things is so that. Let's go to the previous scripture before this one. Should We should live unto righteousness. Let's go to the next one. He is able to aid those who are tempted. The reason he suffered is so that he could provide practical aid and assistance to those of you who are being tempted. It's not God who's tempting. The enemy, when he comes against you, you need an advocate. You need a strong man who's going to be able to stand in there and say, grab a hold of my hand, I'll take care of this. But if we don't know it, if we don't realize what he wants to do for us, we don't grab his hand in that difficult situation, and the full blow comes on us. You know what oftentimes happens? We look back at God and say, God, how could you let this happen? And he's saying, I have my hand outstretched. All you need to do is take it. There are two things. There's, there's a statement I've been sharing with the students throughout this past week, and that is, God is an arm of grace, an arm of and grace has been misunderstood in, in our Christian culture. It is, the, it is the labor, it is the work of God on behalf of the saints to accomplish God's errands. God has an agenda, and he wants to empower and make alive his people. And his grace is what is sent forth. And yes, it is unmerited. We didn't do anything to deserve it. Yes, it is a mark of his kindness and his mercy, but it is more than that. It is power. It is the power of God coming to the aid of the saints. And so there, he has an arm of grace that he wants to come in and rescue the lives of his people. But there are practical things in our life that hinder, and Scripture even makes it clear, there are things in our life that if not dealt with, hinder God's ability, and it shortens his arm of grace, is what it says in Scripture. It shortens it. So there we are, and there he is. It says he so loved the world that he gave his only son, and that love hasn't been eclipsed. He still so loves you. But there are things that he has revealed in his word. He's made it clear. These things hinder me from reaching you, from helping you. And the enemy has a rightful claim on your life. You are giving it to him day in and day out. You're yielding to him. You're yielding to the flesh. You're yielding to darkness. You're yielding to sin. I want to help you. It says he ever liveth to make intercession. Intercession to stand in the gap. There's a gap, there's a breach, there's supposed to be a wall, a barrier around you so that the enemy can't hound you. It's not there. It's broken down. So you need an intercessor. You need someone who can stand, who can be firm, who can be strong to protect you. Because the enemy, if you have broken down walls, there's no resistance against the enemy army coming in. And that's, for most of you, a description of your life. The enemy comes pouring in and there is no strong man There is no one that's able to stand and take that hit for you. And it says he ever lives to make intercession for you. He's there. He's ready to take the hit at any time to stand up and be your man. He's ready. But you must allow him to do that. You must beckon him forth to say, take your position in my life. There are two key things. In the Welsh Revival, they described it this way. That when men and women would come to Jesus Christ, there were two key barriers that oftentimes hindered them from entering into the life of God. And they just had to be moved out of the way. One was unforgiveness. 
When you walk in unforgiveness, here Jesus is forgiving you of all your sins. And yet when you walk in unforgiveness and there's things in your life, people in your life that have hurt you and you are holding your little issues out against them, first of all, it does something terrible to you. It damages your soul. It eats away at your soul. You think you're paying them back, but it's crippling you and it's crippling your spiritual life. And you know what it says in scripture? It shortens the arm of grace. God can't forgive you if you don't forgive others. So now God can't remove that weight that's against you because you're not removing the small little dinky weight that someone has offended you with. God cleared you of all your debt, and yet you were holding this little petty weight against someone else. I know it doesn't feel petty to you. Some of you are like, hey, hey, mine's not petty. But it's hindering God from helping you. That was the first thing. And they saw it all throughout the Welsh Revival, that men and women that would come, unforgiveness was a massive impediment to the forward movement of Jesus Christ in their life. And it needed to be removed out of the way. The second thing, disobedience. There are things that you have known what to do, and you didn't do it. He who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. That's the definition of sin at one point in the Bible. When you know what you ought to do, and then you deliberately choose not to. If you have anything like that in your life, what should you do about it? Come to Jesus with it and make it right. Clarify it. Let him wash you afresh. And now when you get, and here, here is what they said. That the number one thing that actually changed the tide in the Welsh revival as far as the souls of men and women was when they began to obey and when they began to forgive. When they actually reached out and they said, you know, I'm going to make this right. When they did that and then they actually said, the next time God does ask me to do something, I'm doing it. Suddenly, the channel of God began to flow through their life. The arm of grace was no longer short. It was able to reach out and give them what they needed. Let's go to the next one. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The high priest in the nation of Israel was the intercessor. It was a symbol of who Jesus was to come, who is the high priest. But he was the one that offered the sacrifice on behalf of the people. He's the one that had to be the strong man in that nation to hold the law of God, to hold the revelation of God sacred, and then to offer the sacrifices and to do it dutifully. He was the one that stood between God and that people to make sure that they were not wiped out because of their sin. And the blood of that ram or that lamb or that goat, whatever was offered on that sacrifice, was what was doing the atonement and covering for that sin. Jesus has done this. He has made the sacrifice, and it was his own body. How much more precious is the blood of Jesus than the blood of bulls and goats? Jesus has done that. And he walked every inch of this life, and he felt every bit of what you feel. He understands it. Why? so that he could stand for you effectively. He did this. He took your position so that he could meet your deepest need. There's a principle in that, and it's the principle of intercession. Jesus Christ identified with our position. He didn't just look at our broken down wall and say, that wall really needs to be built. He came down and was the wall. He came down and took the hit that was meant for you. He did it. And now he's gained a position in your life. 
Because of what he did, you read Philippians. He humbled himself and took the place of a servant. He humbled himself and he was willing to die even the death of a cross. And because of this, God has highly exalted him. He took the position, the lowest position, and identified in the place of an intercessor. And because of this, God has highly exalted him. That the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is something that is gained through intercession. It is a strength. It is a heavenly strength that is gained. All that to say, oh, we can go to the next one. The intercessor's armor. Now, this is a risky thing to do. In Ephesians 6, it talks about the armor of God. And to be honest, and I know I've said this to some of you before, but we downplay the armor of God because it's something we learn in in Sunday school growing up, but we never look at as a mature adult theme in Scripture. not saying we never do, but that's an extreme statement. But to be honest, it's like we grow out of it. And it feels a little strange to be a mature adult Christian sticking on our armor. You know, it's like little kids are the ones that walk around in armor. You know, it's, it's sweet, it's cute. This truth has become a sweet and a cute truth as opposed to a majestic and epic theme of Scripture. I want you to realize that the armor of Jesus Christ, the armor in, in Ephesians 6 is Jesus Christ. It is the life of Jesus Christ. It is his protection. And when we enter into him, when we clothe ourselves in armor, we're merely clothing ourselves in the work of the cross. This is what he did when he came to this earth, is he gave us an armor. He gave us a defense. Why? So that we would not just be run over. Why did he come to this earth? Not just to forgive us of our sin, but to make us strong to stand so that we could stand and bring glory to his name. Okay, so let's go through this. Let's go to the next. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Hey, first of all, right there, how many Christians actually take that as a command? Be strong in the Lord. It would be fascinating just to take a nice little poll over Christianity. How many of you are strong? It's a command. Be strong. We're like, how do I be strong? All of us are weak. We're defeated. It's feebleness is what is now treated as normal Christianity. As I've joked before, it's like we, we have the scripture in Romans 8 that says we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And today, if someone had the gall to say we are... I think we're more than survivors. I mean, we've all been talking about being survivors in Christ Jesus. I think we're more than survivors. And people would go, well, brother, you know, you don't want to raise the hopes up of the congregation of believers to be more than a survivor. Well, how about someone having the audacity to say, I think we're supposed to be conquerors. Whoa, that's, uh, that's not correct terminology. Well, Jesus actually makes it clear via Paul that we are more than conquerors. We are more than Alexander the Greats and Napoleons in the spiritual realm. We put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that stands against the glory of our God. He will gain his due. He will. And it is our job as the church to press his agenda in this world. So what we have is be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In other words, there are wiles of the devil. The devil wants to destroy your life. 
The devil has no interest in you succeeding in your existence. The devil, the moment you have a flicker of spiritual pursuit and spiritual desire, will try and come against you and tear it down. It's his business. That's what he does for a living, if you will. And so as long as you stay totally uh, disconnected from God, did you know that the, the devil leaves you alone at a certain degree, but also you have no protection against every other vice in your life, and they have free reign over your existence. It's known as the flesh. And the flesh eats you for lunch. The devil isn't going to waste any of his resources on you if you're not showing any spark of interest in Jesus Christ. He'll let you die in your own, uh, your own vomit, if you will. But the moment you start heading towards Jesus Christ, hell assigns you its resources. It's like, well, we got a problem over here. You know, at 10 o'clock, we got some uh, warning signs. Hey, go over and take care of it. Snuff it out. We need to clothe believers in the armor of Jesus Christ so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So there's a reason. Why are we being clothed? So that we can stand. So that we can stand, and when the evil day comes, we don't collapse. We don't fall under it. We're not like, here's this, this truck coming along and we're on the tire. You know, have you ever seen a little clot of, you know, something that's on the tire and it's just sort of being mulled over uh, as it goes down the street? That's not us. The truck runs into us and it goes flying off into the ditch. We stand when it comes. We don't get mowed under. That isn't the, 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 the picture of Christianity on planet Earth is one that stands no matter what comes against it. Because there is something built within that life that is different than what this earth has. There is no man, woman, or child that has the substance of heaven inherently in them. They must allow it in. And when it comes in, it changes them. It transforms them into something that is more than a conqueror. Let's go to the next one. I want to go through these. There's actually seven things that are a part of the honor. I'm sorry, part of the armor of Jesus Christ. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Isn't that a nice uh, way of saying it? Loins girt. That's the belt. When you gird something about your loins, my mom used to always like that word, and it's one of the most disgusting words to me, loins. Uh, And so I'm using it just for your sake here. Uh, But when you have your loins girt about, this wide robe of of the Hebrew would come under, and it would be all gathered together in a belt. And it would lock it all together, and it would bring order and definition to it. It would take it in and make it tight. And it gives you a sense of stability right in the very center. And that's truth. Truth gathers all the thoughts and the feelings together and funk, brings it all together in Jesus Christ. And having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Okay, so we have seven major things that when Paul says take on the whole armor of God, not a piece of the armor of God, the whole armor of God, you enter into Jesus Christ and you understand the authority that is vested in his name. And you stand 
You understand that when something comes against you, they have to come through Jesus Christ, and nothing gets through him. You might believe that lust has a power over your life, but does lust have a power over Jesus Christ? Who does it have to get through? It has to get through him. All the wiles of the devil have to get through him. We might not have any confidence in ourselves, and for good reason. We've proven ourselves to be absolutely pathetic. But when the enemy comes at us, he must go through Jesus Christ, and nothing gets through Jesus Christ. He lived it, and he proved it on planet Earth. Nothing got through him. He was a pure and spotless sacrifice. That is your armor. That is who you clothe yourself in. He has done it on your behalf. He carried your weakness so that he could make you strong. Let's go to the next. Okay, so let's go through each one of these, one by one, and we'll make simple points about them. First, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. My grandma's name is Gert, too, so this is quite the combination. My mom's favorite word with her mom's name, loins girt. I, I should, uh, do, that's a good band name for you, uh, Ben, too, loins girt. He was thinking of sod pottage as a good band name, but uh, uh, loins girt uh, would be another one. Stand, uh, whoa, stand, I wanted to read it again just for everyone's enjoyment. Stand therefore, having your loins girt uh, about with truth. Okay, so this is a command. All of these, by the way, are commands. So when you talk about what God's commissioned, this isn't like a bonus thing. This is saying, I have died, shed my blood, I have given you access into the throne room of grace, now go in and take the armor. That's what's in the throne room. The reason you enter into his life is so that you can have the strength of his life. Why in the world do we want to try and live Christianity in our own terms? Well, all we can offer is feebleness with nice-sounding doctrine. That's not impressive to anyone, including our own soul. Let's get the armor on. Okay, so let's go to the next one. So what I have with each one of these is I have our intercessor's action. When you're talking about his clothing, because that's what the belt is, belt of truth, it is literally the clothing, it gathers the clothing together and locks it together. Well, what was Jesus? Jesus was stripped naked. You'll notice with every single one of these pieces of armor that Jesus took the blow. Everything that he's offering to us, he took on the opposite. He took on the opposite. What you'll notice is with the opposite, it's what most of us live in in a daily basis. We're stripped naked. We're hung out there to dry before the enemy without any barrier. Jesus already was unclothed and stripped naked and scourged for you. Now you walk in his strength. Why did he do that for you? Our intercessor's action. He was made naked that we might be clothed. Clothed with what? Him. That we might walk in his strength. That we might walk in his glory. That we might walk in his truth. This is a fact, and one of the things we've dealt with in Ellerslie over and over and over again, do you believe that 2,000 years ago when Christ died, you died in him? Do you believe it? And people are like, wow, you know, I don't feel it. It doesn't matter what you feel. Fact is truth. This is a fact. Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago, and it says in Romans 6 that you died in him. They say, well, I don't feel dead. I don't care about you feeling. I'm saying, do you believe it? Because this is a fact. In Romans 6, it says, reckon it which means it's an accounting term. You reckon it as so. You actually in, include it in your ledger. This is a fact to me. And then you declare it to the heavenlies, and that is what baptism is. Baptism, which is what we're celebrating today, is a declaration to the heavenlies that I died with Christ 2,000 years ago. Therefore, my old man that keeps getting me in trouble is no longer in control. Jesus is. This, now, this life now belongs to him and him alone. I'm out of the way. This is Jesus' life. That's what baptism is. 
That's what he gave us, the belt of truth. He was stripped naked so that we could be clothed. Let's go to the next one. Oh, this is just a few scriptures to go with it. Then Pilate, therefore, took Jesus and scourged him. When you're scourged, you're stripped naked. Okay, what's an, and they stripped him and parted his garments. Next. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without a seam woven from the top throughout. And what's the next? They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment or my clothing among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now, the reason I put that last scripture in is for you to realize that God in the Old Testament actually makes it clear that the Messiah to come is going to be stripped. He's going to be unclothed. Why? So that you could be clothed in him. This was part of the pattern of what Jesus Christ came to do. He took your infirmities, your griefs, your sorrows, your sufferings, everything that is going to weigh you down, he says, put it on me. Put it on me so they can live. If you want to have life and you crave life, then there's one person to get it from, and that's Jesus Christ. This is the solution for every man and every woman, every child on planet Earth. This is the solution. And yes, I may seem narrow-minded and intolerant because I'm saying this is the solution. I'm being truthful because I believe in God's revealed word. He says it, and I stand on it, and it has been proven true in my life. These are not just anecdotes that I want to give you so I can get through another sermon. This is the truth that moves me. The reason I do what I do is because I care about you knowing this. I care about you appropriating this and reckoning it as true in your life so that you can have the freedom and the life that Jesus Christ has died to give you. And having on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate, what covers the heart. Do you remember what Jesus did? Jesus died. Not a, a bone in his body was broken. Every one that dies in crucifixion, what they do is they always break the legs. It's a tradition. That's how they quicken the pace of the death. But Jesus died before they were able to break his legs. And it promised in Scripture that this will be my Messiah, and not a bone of his body will be broken. If even one bone of his body had been broken, he would have been a false Messiah. Not a bone could be broken. And there he is already dead, and the soldier comes to him. Instead of breaking his legs... He sticks a spear in his side and pierces his heart and outflows blood and water. His heart was literally broken. That's the sign of a broken heart. That a lot of people have said Jesus died of a broken heart. Literally, his heart imploded within or exploded within, depending on how you look at it. That's an extraordinary statement about our God who is so moved by love that he came to this earth and gave up his life. Let's look at the next, next lines. Our intercessor's action, his heart was broken that ours might become the dwelling place of God. Let's, let's move on. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. The bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Number three, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Our intercessor's action. He washed our feet and submitted his feet unto defamation that our feet might be shod with iron and bronze. Every one of these things that Jesus is doing, he is taking the hit. He is submitting his feet, his princely, almighty feet, the symbol of his authority. Everything about crucifixion was a complete mockery to the human body. Everything about it. What was placed upon his head? 
a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold. He was mocked because it said over his, his cross, the king of the Jews. He was mocked and he was ridiculed and he was spat upon. His hands, hands and feet, the symbols of control and power and authority, what are they? Pierced. They are mocked, they're defamed. When David in the Old Testament was actually defaming a man or two men who had, had killed Ishbosheth the king, he cut off their hands and their feet and hung them. So neck, hands, and feet. So head, hands, and feet. This is a symbol in every culture. When you chop off hands and feet, you are defaming that person. You are mocking them, you're ridiculing them, you're putting them in the dust. What did Jesus do? He was put in the dust. Why? So that we would be raised up and these hands would be his hands and these feet would be his feet and this head would be the authority of Jesus Christ. This is his head. We are merely his body. We take on his authority. And so last week, two weeks ago, I talked about uh, the feet, uh, the shoes of iron and bronze and that's what he gives us. Feet of iron and bronze. Okay, the next one. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Right before the cross, Jesus picks the feet. He says, if I wash these feet, all of you are clean. The whole body will be clean. He washed the feet with his own life. This was a symbol of what he was doing. He was cleansing. He was purifying. He was doing the work so that all of us would be clean and we could enter into the life of Jesus Christ. Let's go on. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's the prophecy in Psalm 22. That's four. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet, that's the head. So everything you'll notice, what the enemy hit and what was even prophesied in the Old Testament that would be hit was everything that he was going to arm you with. You'll notice the, the link between the armor of God and what was done to Jesus Christ. There's a direct link between the two. Every single one of these things is something he carried. Why? He was your intercessor so that you could become strong. When Jesus Christ stands for us, it's not so that we can just be loved and hugged. It's so that we would be built up and made strong. Why? Well, I'm going to get to that. Why would he want us strong? Why would he care about that? Okay, and take the helmet of salvation, our intercessor's action. His head became the brunt of cruel and savage taunt that ours might bear the wreath of Christ-endued authority. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it, in upon, put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. That's our Jesus, the King of all kings condescended and humbled himself to be treated like that. And what he did it for was so that he could clothe you, so that he could give you authority, so that he could give you everything you need for life and godliness. Don't leave the armor hanging in the closet. The reason he gave it to you is so that you could wear it. That's why Paul commands you. This is for the glory of our king. Show respect and honor for the sacrifice. Enter into his life. Five, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Our intercessor's action. His hands were bludgeoned with nails that ours might take hold of the promises of heaven. He literally took 
the very thing that holds the weaponry. This is the soldier's artillery. These hands is where it starts with. You strip a soldier of his hands, and he has nothing. And Jesus took, his, his hands were bludgeoned so that yours could grab hold of the shield of faith. Now, of course, you could say, well, what about the sword of the Spirit? I'm going to do a little twist on the sword of the Spirit for you. Because obviously, two hands, sword of the Spirit, shield of faith, that's fine. I just want to do a little twist on it, too. We need what Jesus Christ did so that we could have the weaponry. What does faith do? Faith marches forward, and it claims the territory of God. This this shield is not just a defensive mechanism. Yes, it is. When the enemy brings out his arrows... You, you stand in faith. And no matter what the enemy brings, you hit it back. With the truth of Jesus Christ, nothing can get through it. You're shielded by him. And you understand it. That's what we call the swagger of the freshly anointed. You understand that you are preserved in the life of Jesus Christ. And nothing is going to stop you. And then you march. And you march and you march. And nothing can stand against that shield. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. May that not be you. Do you know that your Jesus died for you? Do you know that your Jesus suffered for you? Do you have to have him come down to this earth in bodily form and say, See? Or are you willing to believe? The scripture that follows this is, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed, which means supremely happy, of robust soul, are those who are willing to take me at my word. I say it, you believe it, you walk in it. God has said it, he has made it clear, you reckon it is true in your life and you start marching. Take this armor, let it be your defense. Six, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Our intercessor's action. He was struck upon the cheek, and his mouth touched the vinegar that our mouths might bear the word of God and wield the almighty sword of the Spirit. Now, stop there. Don't give the next scripture just yet. Now, Eric might seem like he's going out on a limb here by saying, what does the mouth have to do with the sword of the Spirit? First of all, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And the word of God, all the way from Genesis to the very end of Revelation, as I will show you, is depicted, for some reason, out of the mouth. The word of God, God spoke and it was done and accomplished. Everything that God did, when the word of God came into the prophet Jeremiah, it was spoken. It was the word of God given. Jesus is described as the word of God. He is the sword in the hand of God. He is the weapon. And so go to the scripture in, in Revelation. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and that with it he should smite the nations. Now this is in Revelation talking very clearly about Jesus Christ. On his head, are crowns of thorns, uh, crowns of thorns, crowns of gold, head, uh, one upon the other, which means authority upon authority upon authority. This is the king of all kings, the authority of all authorities, the general of all generals. He rules all things, and all things are under his feet. He has a vesture on which is dipped in blood. On his thigh is a tattoo which reads king of kings and lord of lords. And he has come to bring judgment. And out of his mouth, it says, comes a sword. So that's, that's where this comes in. In other words, the mouth of Jesus in the crucifixion scene is mentioned multiple times. And I want you to know that this is no mere mouth. This is the mouth through which the heavens were created. This is no small mouth we're talking about. We are talking about the God who revealed all the scripture. 
who testified and prophesied everything about who he would be down to the most minute detail and then fulfilled it in every regard. This is the mouth of God. And out of it comes a sharp sword, the same one that was struck by Roman soldiers who had no clue what they were doing. That same mouth out of which will flow, will thrust the almighty sword of God, the sword of the Spirit. One of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. And they spit upon him and smote him on the head. They filled a sponge with vinegar and put it to his mouth. Isn't that amazing? Just to see that all of these things, now either way you look at it, Jesus' hands were both pierced. Take it either way, one for the sword and one for the shield. But every single detail of the cross links with the armor of God. He was hit. He was made weak. He was made thirsty. He was made hungry. He was broken to pieces so that you would be made strong and whole and complete in him. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Our intercessor's action. He interceded for us in order that we might become his mighty intercessors. Why has he done this? Why did he take that blow and why is he introducing it to you now? Why is he saying, stand, I need you to stand. What's the seventh thing here? It's praying, it's waiting, it's watching. It's becoming an intercessor for everyone else. You are equipped. You are made strong so that you can be poured out the same way he was poured out for you. An intercessor is looking for wherever there is a breach in a wall and there is someone he's assigned to. I'll go, I'll go, please let me go, God. And then that intercessor will stand in his strength and he will be poured out and he will be beaten and his head may receive a crown of thorns and his hands may be pierced and his side may be pierced and his mouth may be touched with vinegar. Whatever happens to us, we fully understand we are following through on the commission. Jesus gave up his all for us so that we would be shielded in his almighty defense, so that we could walk in the strength and the authority of Jesus Christ, and so that we could become broken bread and poured out wine for a dying world around us. That's the mystery of the cross. That's the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. It's God at work in the same way he was down here on earth in us now. That is the mystery. It's him at work, him enlivening our senses, quickening our being so that we could show his very love that was so moved the Father to send forth his Son in the first place. And now we are so moved by that same love dwelling in us to pour out our life and be broken bread and poured out wine for a dying world around us. Why do we need the shield? Why do we need the sword? Why do we need the belt of truth? Why do we need the the helmet of salvation? Why do we need our feet shod with Jesus Christ? Why do we need to enter into his almighty defense? Because we have a job to do. We have a job that is so much bigger than anything a human could muster the strength for. There is no human discipline, no human grit, no human willpower that can pull it off. You need God himself in you to pull it off. You need to be in God himself to be able to pull it off. You need this weaponry. And I want you to realize that if you're going to stay for the baptism, I want you to realize what this is. It is an entering into the death of Christ. 2,000 years ago, he died. And you're saying, I was with him. What he did was good for me. And it's sufficient. It's able to do the work so that he can now take this empty vessel and fill it and use it. 
But when you come up out of that water, water is symbolic of two very important things. One is death and burial, and the other is cleansing and purging and washing. And so you are washed. You are saying, all that was of me is gone. All the fruits of my sin are gone. All my dead works, all the things I did out of my own strength are gone. And now I live unto Jesus Christ. But when you come out, I want you to just get the mental picture that you are entering in to Jesus Christ. You're like coming out of the water clothed in a new man known as Jesus Christ. And this armor is fresh upon you maybe for the first time. And as you're walking around, you realize that there is something about you. There is a shield. There is a defense. There is a life. There is a hope that maybe you've never understood before. Walk in it. Stay in it. So many Christians get in it, and then they put it on the coat rack. And they say, that was wonderful for when I started. But there is only one way to live the Christian life, and that is to remain in that every second of every day. The enemy's bait is to pull it off and hang it up. You needed that when you first came to Jesus. No, you need that every moment to live for Jesus. There is no way that you could ever earn enough to enter into that throne of grace. You do not have sufficient amounts of righteousness in you to be able to enter into the holy presence of Almighty God. There is only one who can do that, and that's Jesus Christ. Underneath this cloak, he's remaking you. Underneath this cloak, he's actually changing your heart. Underneath this cloak, your thought patterns are changing. You're now thinking different thoughts. Underneath this cloak, you actually find that you're burdened for the lost. You never cared about anyone in your life. And now suddenly you care. What's happening? You entered into Jesus, and now he's entering into you. That's Christianity. Christianity in a nutshell. You enter into Jesus, and the almighty life of God himself enters into you. And starts to demonstrate to this world what Christianity looks like through the feeble life of men and women. It's an amazing reality. And we get to participate in it. Let's pray. Almighty God. You have done it. You have finished the work. Lord Jesus, may we walk in this strength. I pray that you would raise up intercessors in this room. Men and women who are made strong to pour out. Men and women who do not look to their own strength. Men and women who do not look to their own allotment of love and joy and peace. But who say, enough of my own version. I want the real version. I want Jesus Christ in all his fullness, all his life. I need God in me. Lord, I pray that you would stir in your body. And for everyone who wants to enter into that reality of death in Jesus Christ today, I pray that you would stir upon them, that you would move upon them, and they would find themselves saying, I want in. I want to know what that life is. And they would go after it with every fiber of their being. Lord Jesus, we trust you. Amen.